All right, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to SaberSim's DFS Office Hours. It is Friday, July 8th of 2022. Happy Friday to everybody out there. Uh, if this is your first time watching Office Hours, my name is Jordan. I'm the head coach here at SaberSim, and this is an open Q&A style show where I answer questions from the SaberSim community about how to better use SaberSim to build your DFS lineups. So your questions drive the conversation on this show. If you have questions you would like me to answer, uh, you can email us, support at sabersim.com. You can pop your questions in live into YouTube chat if you're with me here live today, and you can pop your questions into the Office Hours channel in our Slack community, uh, for which there is a link to join in the description of every past show. It is free to join that Slack community there. Uh, we have one question in our queue here for today. Uh, it is about research builds, uh, about uh, specifically removing players from your research build completely. Um, if you think that that player has a 0% chance to be optimal. Um, so we'll pull the question up on screen here in just a moment. We'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, but fire away at me if you guys have questions for today's show, uh, because that is the only one we've got so far. We had a busy day on this stream yesterday. Uh, we were we, we had a good pace. We had a lot of questions, a lot to talk about. Spent a long time on some of the questions on yesterday's show as well. Some questions that uh, took a little bit longer to kind of dive into and, and unpack there. So, uh, But just the one question here for today. So we'll go ahead. Let's get the app pulled up. Let's get into it here uh, and start talking about it. We've got one of those great Friday MLB DFS slates on tap here for tonight. 14 gamer uh, on both sites, I think. Um, so I like those big slates, always been a fan of the big slates. I think they, um, make the strategy, uh, a little more, I don't know, enjoyable, um, uh, for me, especially for baseball. I don't know if big slates on basketball, same way for me. Um, but I've always found myself partial to those big slates for, for baseball here. So, uh, anyway, let's go ahead. Let's get started on this first question. This is from tone in Slack. Um, and I kind of teased this a moment ago. He said, question about research builds. If there are teams on the slate that are starting openers who I know are only going a couple innings max, would you recommend removing them from the research build process if I've taken a stand that I don't want any of those guys in my lineups uh, because I feel their chance to be optimal is zero? Similarly, if there's a game with a very high chance of a game delay because of weather and I decide to take the stand that I will only use bats from the game and not the starting pitchers, does it make sense to remove them from the research builds? Uh, or feel strongly that a game will be postponed because the weather's ugly, uh, but there's no announcement before lock. Should I remove those teams from the research build process? Uh, for context, I use the results of the research build to heavily influence exposure. So uh, yeah, I mean, should you remove players or teams from your research build if you think they have a 0% chance of being optimal? Um, to, that, to that question, I would say short answer is yes. Um, to some of the examples uh, you've mentioned here, I would say proceed with caution, right? So I mean, if you believe that there is truly a 0% chance that a given player can be optimal that night, right? A, a truly 0% chance, then it does make sense to remove them from your research build. I think the best example that you've given here uh, is the postponement, right? Like if you're looking, if you're uh, researching the weather uh, and it looks like the game is just exceeding, like very, very far and away likely that the game's going to be postponed, right? Um red on Kevin Roth's dashboard or something like that. And we're basically just waiting for the team to give the announcement. I think it does maybe make some sense to remove them from your pool because the, the game's not going to play. There's not going to be any sports. Uh, there's not going to be any game played there that night. There, There's no chance that those players end up in the optimal lineup, right? I think that does make some sense. Now, for some of these others, I think it gets a little bit interesting, particularly on the rain delays, right? Now, you may want to fade, right? Like, let's see. I think... Um, 
I think Baltimore has a little bit of a chance of rain today. So like you may be looking at this here and you may say, um, I'm not going to play either of these two pitchers in my lineup because I don't want them getting pulled early. That does not necessarily mean that those pitchers have no chance of being optimal, right? The role that they fill in your research build of quantifying that percent chance is still there. Even to a lesser extent, I think I think openers have that a little bit as well. I, I mean, a couple notes about the openers. First of all, very low projected pitchers are going to get filtered out most of the time, right? So we have this filter here that says only include players with my projection that's greater than four. And if you leave this on when you run your research build, it's going to remove all relievers, first of all. And it's typically going to grab, I would say, most openers as well, or at least some openers. Um, but, I mean, you know, some some opener that maybe has upside to get up to three or four innings if he's playing at an elite level probably has some non-zero value of showing up in the optimal lineup. And the the value of leaving that player in your pool for your research build is not so yet you can quantify that player's percent chance of being optimal, but so that you correctly project all of the other players in the pool, right? Um, I guess uh, another way, another way of kind of thinking about this is that if we're going to project a player to carry any ownership, or if you if you believe that a player is going to carry some ownership, they probably need to be in your research build. Otherwise, you're going to have a mismatch, right? Like if you remove those two guys here, um, if you remove those the LA and Baltimore pitchers from your pool, right? Are these popular pitchers tonight? No, definitely not. But they're carrying 5% of the total pitcher ownership on their own. And if you were to remove them from your research build because you don't want to play them, you're going to mismatch your your uh percent chance of being optimal across all pitchers is going to sum up to 200%, but your percent chance of being optimal or your percent chance, your sum of the total pitcher ownership is not going to add up to 200%. So you have a little bit of a mismatch there, right? Um, in the case of a game that's going to be postponed, right? Saberson doesn't pick up on that. So like, let's say Texas and Minnesota for some reason was like, you know, 90% chance to be postponed or something like that. 95% chance to be postponed. We'll still project all the ownership for all these guys in this game, even though it's far more likely to actually be 0%. So with all that said, though, I want to be totally clear about something. I'm speaking, I'm speaking totally about research builds here. If you don't want to play a pitcher in your final lineups because they have a chance to get a rain delay and get their, get their game cut short, or if you don't want to play a, you know, if you think a game has too much weather risk and you just don't want to play it, that's fine. I'm speaking totally about just research builds here and the, the the quantifying of the probability of a player being optimal. And to that particular question, I would say, yes, if you think that there is truly, truly a 0% chance that a player ends up in the optimal lineup, then remove them, right? You will end up with a better research build. I think the best example of that, at least given here, is postponement. But otherwise, I would leave most players in because players generally probably do not have a 0% chance of being in the optimal, right? Like that's, that's if they are playing that night, that the idea that they're, that probability is actually zero is, is, is low unless they are owned in 0% of lineups for some reason or another. So, um, one other thing that you can do here just to give you something to kind of chew on, I guess a little bit is... You can also try to bake, you know, you can try to bake some of that in a little bit. So like one thing that I've done is for games that have, for games that carry some weather risk, but do not have what I would call like extreme weather risk, maybe a game that's like orange or yellow orange on Kevin Roth's dashboard. 
if you can kind of try to project or estimate the probability of that game getting rained out, maybe you think it's a 30% chance of getting rained out. You can actually use that to, I would say, like adjust your optimal rates from your research build, right? By basically saying, you know, let's say, let's say you come up with the, let's say you come up with the conclusion that a starting pitcher has a 10% chance to be in the optimal lineup, but his game only has a 50% chance to play. Well, you can just basically artificially adjust that probability and say, okay, now that pitcher only has a 5% chance to be in the optimal lineup because 5% of the time he doesn't even play the other 5% of the time he, or sorry, 50% of the time he doesn't even play the other 50% of the time he does. And in those, that sample of games, he has a 10% chance to be optimal, which makes his overall optimal chance 5%. So you can do stuff like that too, um, that I think it's kind of interesting there, um, kind of a rabbit hole to go down there. But anyway, good question. Um, again, I, I guess just to kind of summarize here, because I think I was I was a little bit all over the place answering this question. If you truly think a player's percent chance of being in the optimal lineup is zero, I think it's fine to remove them from the research build. I don't think there are many situations that qualify as that. I think the only one that really probably comes to mind is a game that's very likely to be postponed, um, like virtually 100% chance of being postponed. For any of these other situations you've described, I wouldn't necessarily remove those players from your research build. I would leave them in there and then just remove them from your pool when you build your final lineups, right? Remove players that have a rain delay risk. Uh, remove, you know, openers or, or bulk pitchers, bulk relievers or things like that, if you so choose, that kind of stuff. But they should be in there probably for the research build. So anyway. Good question. Good way to get us started. A couple other questions have trickled in here now, so we will keep it rolling. This question from Jimmy. When adjusting for exposures, it seems to be personal preference, but what would be some good indicators to look for? For example, if I see a minus 250, minus 300 fave, uh, I will usually try to have 3x the lines for every one. Uh, if it's closer, maybe just about an even split, but siding one way or the other thoughts. Um, so yeah, not sure. I mean, not sure exactly what sport you're talking about i think this like probably could be like esports tennis mma like anything where okay actually no i should say this first of all there are only some sports where something like this would even matter to me right like i don't the the win probability of a baseball team has no effect on whether or not i want to stack that team right like i don't care i don't care if the yankees are minus 175 right like that i doesn't affect how much exposure i want to the yankees um but there are sports where it might right like i think the probability of the probability of a player or potentially a team winning the match affecting how much exposure i want to that team is really going to be dependent on how correlated the team winning to that team being a good play in dfs is right so like in binary sports like tennis and mma where you basically have to win for that player to be viable. It's it's very correlated to that, right? Uh, in esports, right? Same thing. Uh, you basically, if you're going to stack a team, they virtually have to win for that lineup to be successful. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think this is a good heuristic. Again, it's 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 still going to be somewhat personal preference, but one thing that I have used before um, as kind of a guidepost here. Uh, is I will kind of use, I will just use the probability of a fighter, for example, let's use MMA for, I, th I think MMA is a good example here. Um, I will use the raw probability of a fighter winning their fight as a guidepost for how much exposure I want, or put, put it maybe a better way, not how, I don't want to just match the, the, the win probabilities of every fighter in the field, but I will use it as like a if a fighter has a 20% chance to win their fight and I have 50% exposure, that might be a little bit too much, right? That might still be, I might still be able to get leverage on that, that particular fighter over the field. Let me just show you this. Let me just show you what I'm talking about here. 
Um, cause I feel like it's kind of, I, a lot of times I start answering these questions while builds are running and then I get my whole point out and I haven't even had any opportunity to actually demo what I'm talking about. So what I will do is I will pull in, um, just the win probability here, right. From our Sims and I'll just line it up right with the exposure. And I particularly like to look at this for underdogs, right? So I'll look and I'm basically looking, you know, if I have any outliers where there's a fighter that, um, I am far more exposed to this fighter than their pure probability of winning the fight, right? Um, so we don't really have any here, but, you know, maybe hypothetically, um, you know, I guess for the heck of it here, let's just take, um, I don't know, let's, let's take one of these like bigger underdogs here. Um, let's see. Let's say I had like 60% exposure to Michael Johnson or something like that, right? Like, Oh, I can't even get to that much. Let's say I have 50% exposure, right? That's how it kind of came out here. And, you know, that might be fine. Maybe that's a good leverage play. Maybe it's a good way to get over the field on a, on a particular fighter. But uh, do I need that much exposure, right? Do I need to outpace the probability of just that portfolio asset basically paying off in my pool? Maybe not. And the way I like to often kind of look and see how much exposure do then do I want or, or how much should I actually go and get is then looking at the ownership projection, right? So if Michael Johnson has a 32% chance to win the fight, I have 50% exposure. The field's only going to roster him at 20%, right? I can kind of, I probably can just get the leverage here by, you know, getting max 40% or even, you know, I probably even have, I even have leverage over the field if I just match the, the, the win probability of the fight itself, right? So I think in sports where DFS performance is very highly correlated to winning, whether that's esports, tennis, MMA, um, I feel like those are the three that come to mind at least immediately. Um, I I think it's a I think it can be a good guidepost or a good tool um, for for setting those exposures, and that's typically how I do it. I'll just compare my exposure to the win probability, and then kind of use the ownership projection as kind of a final line there, and just make sure I'm about in line there. So, um, you know, though, I mean, the one exception to that is this is, you know, this misses some context of like slate size and contest, right? Like if you're playing, you know, if you're playing a two game league of legends slate and playing the big contest, right? Well, you, you might not have the luxury of being able to get leverage on an underdog while also staying roughly close to that underdog's raw probability of winning, right? Like there may be an underdog with an implied probability that of a 20% chance of winning the match, but because the slate is so small and the contest is so big, you need 60% or 75% of that team to get enough leverage and to build profitable lineups. And, and that's just the way it is. Whereas, you know, on a, a another example on a, um, you know, on a, uh, 20, 25 or 30 match tennis slate, right. Being even 10% over, the raw probability of any underdog winning their match might be way overexposed, right? Because there are 15 different underdogs and why, why take one chance on one particular player? So like this does mix, miss a little bit of contest, uh, context and slate context. Um, I feel like I say those, I feel like I say slate context and contest context, like, 12 times every stream here, but uh, obviously very important things to keep track of. So, um, but broadly speaking, I, I think it's a great like guidepost uh, of something to look into. So, um, but um, let me make sure I, I hit everything that kind of is, is asked in this question here. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I guess uh, the one thing that I, I kind of focused on underdogs here and it looks like you're, you're a little bit more focused on favorites. Um, I, I, I 
I think it's fine. Like however you want to, however you want to do it. I I tend to like the the favorites kind of just work themselves out in in the wash, I guess, a little bit, right? Like I I always think about this more as like avoiding avoiding a situation where I'm potentially overexposed to a parts a big downside risk, right? In the form of that person losing. The 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 favorites, like you can, I mean, the favorites kind of work themselves out because they are they are the favorites, right? Like you're I guess a better way of saying this is that the favorites in any sport are always going to be the best projected plays. So you are not I, I wouldn't say you're ever going to be like improperly exposed there in particular. Uh, maybe one way you could put this on its head is like for like an extreme favorite light, look for outliers the other direction, right? Like if you had, um, let's see, you know, maybe if you're getting 100% exposure to, to Fiziev here, right? Well, like maybe that, maybe you are a little bit overexposed there on a on a fighter that only has a a, a uh, two and three shot basically of, of winning the fight. So I think kind of uh, two sides of the same coin there. Cool. Um, okay. Cool. So this is from Mark. He said, uh, speaking of research builds, yesterday I did one and had Verlander at like 20 or 30% optimal, but ownership was going to be like 90%. Doesn't mean that mean he's 90% likely to be in the winning lineup rather than the optimal. And we should lean strongly towards matching that ownership. Um, okay. So yeah, this... This gets kind of this kind of gets interesting into like the theory side of research builds here. Um, so the okay, I'm trying to think about where to start with this. So if you assume that both of those numbers are just completely right, right? Like there's that's that is what is going to happen, right? That uh that Verlander is is going to be rostered in exactly 90% of lineups and his chance of being in the optimal lineup is truly between 20 or 30%. I would argue that I I I would argue that that is like one of your best exploitative opportunities that you're going to get and that maybe even I I would have probably almost fully faded Verlander in that situation. And when you think about an individual contest, right? If he is truly rostered in 90% of the lineups in that contest, then then yes, his chance of winning that contest is artificially inflated because only when you're running a research build, you get the opportunity to basically look at every simulation that we have. So you get this whole big range of outcomes. But when you're actually looking at a true contest, you are limited by how many lineups actually roster that player, right? So yes, Verlander's probability of winning the contest that you are in is much higher because he's appearing in so many more lineups. But when we then kind of look at more of an, e an EV standpoint, right, your lineups are, assuming the simulations that you're using are accurate, your lineups are poised to make much more money. They are poised to be to have a higher expected value across the full range of outcomes because 70 or 80% of the time there is a better there is a better set of two pitchers that does not include Verlander in that best possible scoring lineup. So like really kind of I think part of what this question is getting at is like the selection bias of contests themselves, 
right? Uh, another way this question I think comes up all the time is somebody will see in a big flagship GPP, especially this happens all the time for NFL because of how big the contests get. Somebody will win the Millie Maker or some other enormous contest with a completely uncorrelated or perhaps even negatively correlated lineup. And then there will be a big rush in the DFS industry and social media to say, is stacking dead or maybe we're stacking too much or does stack not actually work? But in reality, because those lineups exist and are in the contest, they have some probability, they have a raw probability of, of being the top lineup. So when if you were to match Verlander in this situation, I think the statement you would be making strategically would be that you you feel otherwise not confident about your projection of his raw probability of being optimal. And by rostering him at the rate at which other lineups in the contest are, by rostering him at the rate at which he's projected to be owned, you essentially neutralize him in your lineups, right? You say, my portfolio of lineups is going to be no more helped nor hurt by Verlander's performance than any other average lineup in the pool. But this to me would not be a good situation to do that because I think there is actually a really good opportunity to exploit this, this ownership, right? Um, so, and I know, I think it sounds like Verlander ended up having like a decent day. I don't know if he was necessarily in the optimal lineup. I'm not sure if he was in the winning lineup in, in big contests, but um, I, I, I don't, I, I think, well, okay, I, let me, I'm trying to think about how to wrap this up. I think you should be aware of the fact that the, the actual lineups that are entered into a contest affect the probabilities of different players and teams and stacking types being in the winning lineup in that contest. But when you run a research build, you are almost attempting to kind of be contest neutral and assess a probability across the full range of lineups or outcomes of a player basically earning their spot into that lineup. Um, so yeah. I mean, there are fundamental, there are some issues with some of the assumptions of a research build, right? Like you could, I mean, you could potentially, you know, in a, one of, one of the main fundamental assumptions of a research build is that the probability of a player being in the optimal lineup is roughly equivalent to a player being in the winning lineup, right? Like the, you're, you're basically assuming that that's, those are close enough. In situations like these where that maybe is less true, or if you're playing very small field contests where you don't really even need the up close to the optimal lineup to win, that, that assumption breaks down. Um, but I think it is still I think it is still strong enough to use in in general. And in this in this particular example, like I would I didn't play the early slate that Verlander was on yesterday, but I I would have probably been very likely well under the field. I don't know if I would have I thinking about it now, it's a three-game slate. I probably would not have been completely off of him, but I would have been very surprised if I built more than 50% of my lineups with Verlander in it. So, um, but good question. Definitely kind of an interesting, um, interesting experiment there. So, um, okay. Okay couple other questions here. Um, 
Aaron, uh, okay, so it looks like we have some kind of support type questions trickling in here. So uh, I'll do my best on a couple of these here real quick. So first, Aaron said, try using tried using the swap tool prior to lock for players not in the starting lineup, but the message said there are no players listed as out, ended up manually searching to swap. Any ideas? So a uh, couple things on that. So we will not overwrite a custom projection. So if you've entered, if you entered custom projections for a team, so like tonight, if you go over here, and you enter a custom projection for the Dodgers, right? Change the, the projections here. And then later we find out that somebody on the Dodgers is not in the lineup. We won't overwrite that custom projection. So, you know, let's say you've you've bumped up a couple of these guys, right? So you have this going on here. And it turns out that Lux or Lamb is not in the lineup later. Um, we, we're not going to overwrite that. So uh, they will still, they won't show as out. Um, so one thing that I like to do if I've done that is I'll go check the team's for whom the starting lineup has come out and just see, like make sure that they, all the players that have a projection are confirmed in the batting order. And if they don't, I'll just clear out the projection. Um, you could also, you know, what, what might just be easier is especially if you're just talking about trying to late swap, if all you're trying to do is quick swap is just clear out all of your custom projections, right? Like at that point, you've probably gotten 95% of the value out of them anyway. So just clearing them all, resetting back to default um, will work. And that that is probably the easiest way. Um, custom projections is definitely the first thing that comes to mind there. I think that's the easiest thing that that people get tripped up on. The other though uh, is just making sure, obviously, that that like news has impacted the app by that point, right? So checking the MLB lineup alerts channel in Slack and making sure that like the new sim has actually run to account for that. Um, you know, there is a little bit of time it takes after getting a confirmed starting lineup for the sim to run and for us to have that in the app. So um, making sure of that. You know, I, a good example last night. I know, I think the the Blue Jays put out a starting lineup and Springer was batting leadoff. And then they put out another lineup and Springer was not in the lineup. And there was a brief period of time, very close to lock actually, where, for example, we had the Springer lineup while we were running the new Sims for the no Springer lineup. And then when the new Sims run, then the lineup is correct. So um, those would be the two things I would check on. Um, I would say from there, um, I would, I would, uh, I lost my train of thought. I would check on those two things first. If you are still having issues, um, I, I mean, maybe just check the actual like exact player that you're looking at. Like I would, I would maybe just search like, you know, if there's a very specific player, if um, I don't know, if uh, Altuve gets scratched, right? Like check him specifically. Um, you can always uncheck a player, right? That will, that will be the same impact as that player getting ruled out, um, which it sounds like maybe you did. Um, and I, I, I would say those at least, all together should help resolve most of these issues here. So, um, gotcha. So Aaron says I was using custom projections. Yeah. And Robert said he had the same questions with custom projections. Yeah. So, I mean, we won't, we won't ever overwrite a custom projection, right? We don't want to undo somebody's work, um, with, with, with any of that. So, um, that, that, that is the big thing to look for. So, um, and then Demetra said the save icon is not showing up on my page. So I'm not able to save my lineups. Can you get it for me to show up? Um, I, okay. So I, I will only be, I, I will only be able to troubleshoot this somewhat while I'm on stream here. Um, one thing I have noticed before, like if this is, so you're building your lineups and then it's basically just like spinning forever up here. Um, one thing I've noticed that can kind of help with that is if you go back to the projections tab and then go back to the build itself. Sometimes that kind of like refreshes it. Um, 
and and fixes the issue. So here, like if this, I'll just stop this so we can just see this, right? So um, give this a second here. Okay, so in this case, it was instantaneous, right? This is already, this is good. Um, but if we, I guess if we change these two real quickly here, um, it should probably spin again. One sec. Um, okay. So I guess one thing to note here, so this will only become enabled if you've actually like changed your, if you've actually changed the lineups in some way, right? Like you have to actually have like a material change. So, um, like this, right? We'll, we'll adjust. So then it, then it becomes enabled, right? So now we can save it and give this a second. And now we're good to go. Now we have a new lineup set. If for some reason this is like spinning or I, again, I don't know exactly what you're seeing. If it's like spinning uh, a lot, or if you're just not seeing it, um, you can try a hard refresh control shift R, or sometimes I've noticed just in that particular case, going back to the projections and then back to the build sometimes helps, but my options to really troubleshoot this kind of stuff on stream are pretty limited. Um, just cause I can't see exactly what your screen looks like, what's going on for you. Uh, our support team can, so if you're running into an issue like this, I would click settings up here, click report a problem and send a message to our support team. They have way, way more tools at their disposal to actually troubleshoot and fix this uh, than I do on the on the stream here. So that's that's what I'd recommend trying. Um, Don had said new to MMA, any SaberSim videos on that? Um, yes, let's pull up our YouTube channel here. Um, we have a couple good ones. Um, the first is the interview I did with Will, uh, who built our, uh, MMA Sims. Um, that video is right up, uh, front and center on our YouTube channel, crush MMA DFS with the power of simulations, walk through how the Sims work, uh, some MMA strategy. Um, and then we actually had Max on a couple days ago here, uh, on office hours, um, talking about his MMA strategy. Um, so if that is in the office hours playlist here, if you scroll a little bit over to the right, um, nine days ago, what does DFS pro max Max's MMA strategy look like? Um, the first 20 minutes or so of this is Max kind of breaking down his, his MMA strategy. Um, so I think that's a good resource as well. So I checked those out. Um, cool. All right. Jimmy says, uh, for MLB 20 max, if you edit the team exposures only post build, how will Sabersim affect the exposures of other teams lineups that were made? Is it by Saber score? Um, let me. Uh, yes, yeah. So, basically, like, how does how does Saber score work with the exposures? How do we how do we end up at the final lineups that we're going to end up at? So yeah, so if we come over here and say, like, we're going to, we only want thirty percent Houston for one reason or another, right? We're, we're taking a stand there. How do we arrive at the other exposures that we get for these other teams? You 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 basically nailed it, right? So what we'll do is, in this case, I have a pool of 134 lineups. We will look for the top 20 highest Sabre score lineups possible. But the selection of that is limited that no more than 30% can include a Houston stack. And you'll typically see, for example, right? So first lineup is a Houston stack. Second lineup is a Houston stack. Third lineup is a Houston stack. Fourth lineup is a Houston stack. Fifth lineup is a Houston stack. Sixth lineup is a Houston stack. And then the remaining lineups will have no Houston stacks, right? So it's done step by step, right? Lineup by lineup. So the the remaining exposures, the other exposures that are ultimately like arrived at, I guess, uh, are just from the 
like what are the best 20 lineups in the pool sorted by Sabre score honoring the the custom exposures that you've listed here so that's how that works Dante says, Jordan, when I adjust a pitcher's projection, does it lower the opposing team's projection as well? Uh, also, should I be seeing significant difference in exposure if I run uh, consecutive builds with the same sliders? Okay, so we have two questions there. So the first one, um, adjusting a pitcher's projection alone does not adjust the, the, um, the team hitting projections on the other side, right? There is a little bit of a ripple effect there where if you were to, if you, so... Because Giolito is very negatively correlated to Detroit bats, right? And because correlation is very high in baseball by default, if you build lineups and are getting a lot of Giolito in them, you you by extension are are very unlikely to get um uh <laughs> um you by extension are very likely to get uh less tiger stacks automatically. So as this comes down even though the tiger stacks are not going up in projection, you're somewhat more likely to get them in your lineups just because Giolito is occupying less spots in, in that lineup, right. Or in the, in that portfolio. But if you want to, if you want to get a more correlated change here, right? Like if you want, if you're saying I want to fade Giolito and I also want to get more, uh, I want to get more um, Detroit stacks as a result of that. I think the better thing to do is to adjust the team totals. And that will basically have a correlated change. That will change the way that the game is projected as a whole uh, and adjust both sides of that. So, you know, we can look at this here. So Giolito's projected for 2195. Um, we could bump up Detroit, for example, a little over a half run to match the White Sox and click apply changes to games. And... We will see that Giolito has now gone down to 19.5. And I didn't see what the Tigers' bats were before, but they presumably have all gone up as well. So you'll get both sides of that there. Um, I would say in general, if you are, are like for baseball in particular, I would, I would, I would use these team totals quite a bit. Like if you want to do stuff like that, because then you're gonna get like because that's really what you're saying. If you want to fade Giolito, you're you're also you're, you're also saying you probably want your fair share more of Tiger stacks along with that because you think that Giolito is overprojected. So uh, you can get that by adjusting the team total projections. So, um, And then another question, also, should I be seeing significant differences in exposure if I run consecutive builds with the same sliders? Uh, it depends a lot on what those sliders are. It also depends a little bit on the sport. Um but the short answer is like, yes, you definitely can, right? Because with, with SaberSim, right, we're not just building lineups based on a consistent average projection. We are randomly sampling simulations, right? So if you were to build on the default settings for a 20 max, 10 to 50K for tonight's slate, for example, you would be pulling out 28 simulations of our thousands of sims for each game on the slate every time we build the lineup. And there's a lot of natural variance in the selection of simulations when you build each individual lineup. That's a good thing, right? That's, you know, I think that's actually one of the biggest features of SaberSim is that we understand the real ranges of outcomes of players because we have those sims and then we pull from those sims uh, to, to build lineups, right? So you get this natural, um, you get natural exposures and you get uh, better probabilities of players reaching their, their ceilings and things like that. Um, 
ultimately, like why why is this sport dependent? Well, it depends on what the ranges of outcomes of players look like, right? Like a hitter for baseball is going to have a pretty diverse range of outcomes, right? Like Alvarez is projected on average for 9.73. Um, outcomes under that account for like 50% of his outcomes, but then he has ceiling outcomes of like scoring 35, 40 points, right? So how the Sims ultimately get bucketed and and kind of randomized when it comes to building your lineups depends on what the ranges of outcomes of a player actually look like. In basketball, for example, because the most common outcomes for most basketball players is pretty close to their mean, right? You typically don't get as significant differences between builds for for that sport. But for baseball, especially for hitters, you you probably can. Um, and then the last thing to note there is obviously the higher your sim precision slider is, the more differences you're going to get between builds, right? Like if we're looking, if you're looking at one simulation per game per lineup, that's going to, you're going to get completely different lineups every time you build or very different lineups every time you build, as opposed to looking at 91 simulations per lineup at sim precision two. So, and then, uh, some jokes about me, uh, almost, almost dying from the dry air. Yeah, honestly. So I've had this like, kind of like somewhat lingering dry cough. Um, from getting sick like two weeks ago. It was not COVID, uh, fortunately, but I was sick like two weeks ago and I had this like somewhat lingering dry cough that like kind of just stabbed me uh, the other day on stream. Um, and I uh, had a hard time coming back from that. So, but I'm glad it, I'm glad it was the source of uh, some entertainment uh, for the audience that day. So, but. All right. Any other questions for me on uh, today's <laughs> today's stream? Uh, Don said he really liked Behind the Sims. Good. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. There is another. There will be a new episode coming out uh, today, actually. So um, before the end of the day. Jimmy VB says the DFS profit plan is fantastic and very helpful to get things in order. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um, yeah, we've gotten a lot of good feedback about it here so far. If you are looking for it, for anybody that hasn't seen it yet, um, I probably should move it up, actually. Um, I feel like it should be up in here. So I'll, I'll move it up. But for now, um, at the bottom, start winning more with our DFS profit plan. Uh, outlines basically what I feel like we have proven is the best contest selection framework to use in DFS. Uh, a combination of, um, man, this looks kind of small, doesn't it? Here, let me make this a little, oops, that's not, I was going to make this a little bit bigger so you guys can actually see what's going on here. Um, there we go. That looks a little better. This video. Um so basically is that the combination of, you know, the right, I guess a better way to put it, the right mix of different contest styles uh, to minimize your variance while maximize your, your, um, your risk or wait, maximize your profit, minimize your risk, right? Not maximize your risk. So um, yeah, we've gotten a lot of good, a lot of good feedback about that so far. So, um, but Cool. All right. All right, cool. Looks like looks like the chat's ready for the weekend here today. Talking about Coors Lights and, and taking puffs. Looks like you, it seems like you guys are ready for Friday. Any other DFS questions here for me on today's stream before we start to wrap up? It's uh it's been a good one here. I see a couple of people typing, so we'll give everybody a minute here. Um, but 
Guy Will Gamble says, I've been doing much better since that video dialing back to a single site. Yeah, I maybe should just do that too. I Sometimes I'm like, why am I playing two sites? Like I play DraftKings and FanDuel pretty much every night. And I, do, I don't know. I have money on FanDuel. And to me, I the the reason I always end up going back is because that other otherwise it feels like that money's just sitting. Like I want that money to move. Otherwise, what's it doing there? And I, I have money on FanDuel anyway to use the sports book and things like that. So like I feel like since there's DFS there, and I I feel like I like that's a profitable use of that money. I feel like I should be using it every slate. But then when you're building lineups for both slates, and last night I got my lineups in. 10 seconds before lock um, because I started my process a little bit late with there was like late Giants lineup, late Cubs lineup, late Springer scratch for the Blue Jays or like variety of different late Pirates lineup who were playing right at lock because it was a double header. So I was just late and I was sitting there like, why am I doing both sites? What, what is the point of this? I get the sweat on one site. One thing I have done in the past before is I'll combine the I'll basically like combine my FanDuel and DraftKings bankroll, but then only play on DraftKings. But when you do that, the swings on that one site start to get pretty significant. And then you're moving money between sites and that's a big pain. So um, I don't know. I haven't, haven't totally figured that out yet, but um, there's players that, that play at a way bigger volume than me uh, and are just playing on one site. And it makes me feel a little silly sometimes at the volume I'm playing for playing both. But um, I actually also think contest selection wise, I actually think that FanDuel does have a little bit better of a low stakes con- uh, contest offering um, than DraftKings does, especially if you want to get a lot of lineups in play. Like you have to be able to play seventy five dollars worth of action just to get into a one hundred fifty max on uh, on DraftKings, whereas you can play one fifty for seven dollars and fifty cents on FanDuel. And then even if you want to scale up a little bit more, it only costs another thirty eight dollars to play the quarter. Um, so. Yeah, I don't know, but um, Aaron says, do you ever remove lineups that are too chalky or low projected? Um, so I, I don't, I would not say that I, I do that. Um, I think it's, I don't think it's a bad idea. Um, that's like very much in the spirit of what Max came on and talked about when he was on talking about MMA is basically he looks for lineups that have, basically like that kind of set off like a dupe alarm for him that, that like project very well uh, that are very highly owned and also have a very high salary and we'll remove them from the pool. Um, I would say for me in particular, I, I think I, I get to that result from other parts of the process, right? Like I think, I think one, I think Sabersim is going to do a pretty good job of making sure that your lineups for the contest you are playing have the right amount of ownership and have the right amount of raw scoring potential to be successful in the contest you're playing. So I think in some ways that's, that kind of happens automatically. Um, but I think there's probably some value that can be added there if you, if you want to, right? Like looking and um, I mean, you can kind of, you know, let's, let's go through this real quickly here. So um one, one way I think you could do that is if you were building for a 20 max, for example, is looking for lineups. And I'm just going to reset my exposures here. Looking for lineups that are outliers for one reason or another, right? Uh, amongst your pool. So we'll give this a second to reset so that we can look at the original pool of lineups here. Um, okay. So 109, 117. So, I mean... These two things are correlated, right? Average projection is going to correlate w- somewhat well with ownership. Um, 
but I'm kind of just looking to see, you know, if there are any lineups that stand out as like a significant outlier here. Um, it doesn't really look like we do. Like most of the lineups are between like 95 projected points and a ownership of like 120 up to 125, which like seems fine to me. Um, you know, maybe if you were playing 150, maybe you find a lineup that's in there that like has a combined ownership sum of like 150% or something like that. And there's a similarly projected lineup that you could get for a little bit less. Um, I think that makes sense, but it's, it's not something that I do. These are, these are concepts that are important to me. I should say that, right? Like I want, I want a lineup that has raw scoring potential. Um, and I want lineups that are not just playing the chalkiest plays, but I think I typically let SaberSim handle most of that for me. I think if you're playing smaller field contests or playing a smaller pool of lineups overall, um, you might be able to get a little bit of additional value. Like maybe you look at this, maybe if you only wanted to play five lineups, maybe you come to the conclusion that, you know, given that the projections are all pretty close, why play some of these 117 pr projected lineups, right? Why not play these lineups that are 73, 74, um, 97 and 84% owned as opposed to these ones. Right. But, um, that would be a lot of work to do if you were playing like more than, than 20 or one. More, yeah. More than 20 or so. So, well, sounds like somebody just like, I don't know. It was a big rumble in the office or something. I don't know. Uh, Eamon said, uh, what's up air Jordan. Can you give us an in-depth high level insight into your research build process? Um, Yes, I, so an in-depth high level insight into my research build process. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Uh, let's talk about it here. So I've, I've done this before on stream, um, but I'll kind of talk about what I'm doing here anyway. So first things first, like what is a research build? What's actually happening here, right? So this build is meant to basically give you a look at kind of the raw, as close as you can kind of get to the raw SIM data, right? We're going to say, don't take into account correlation. Don't take into account ownership fade. Use a single game simulation for every game on the slate and then build the best possible lineup for that single game simulation, right? Um, so we're going to get essentially 1,500 single, single slate SIM optimals, right? What's the best possible lineup we can build? Um, for that single sim. And what I typically use this for is I compare the probability of a player showing up in that optimal lineup to a to the ownership projection of that player. And I'm looking basically for, for leverage opportunities, right? I think in a nutshell, what I'm really kind of trying to do here is, is add value to the ownership fade part of the Saberson process, right? Like some of this is already captured in the form of that ownership fade slider. I like to pull back the curtain and kind of look at the slate at more of a raw level and make my own decisions on where chalk is going to go, where I think the best opportunities are to fade, so on, right? Um, so we'll let this build here and I'll kind of talk about the ways that I look at this. Um, ultimately, there's not like, there's not a really a flow chart that you can necessarily follow here, right? It's not, you kind of have to think about this. You kind of have to think about this in context. Um, it's 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 not necessarily just enough to say, and I've I've tried to give a flow chart before of like do this when you see this, and then I don't really like the way it ends up. So I'll, I'll basically I'll show you the I'll show you like the things that I kind of look at here. Um, but all right, so hang on, let's let this load. 
It and it can take a second, so be patient with it here. Fifteen hundred lineups on a on a fourteen game slate. It takes a while to load. Okay, so like basically, you're comparing the exposure per- percentage, which is the percentage of your fifteen hundred lineups where a player shows up in the optimal, to the ownership projection. And I'm mostly looking for inefficiencies here, right? If a player has, you know, Blake Snell is one that jumps off here right away. If Blake Snell is thirteen percent shows up as one of the top two best pitchers thirteen percent of the time but he's going to be in 27% of the lineups. There's, there's an inefficiency there. If both of these numbers are true, right? The field is overvaluing his, his probability, right? So to react to that, I'm probably going to fade that particular player, right? Like I, I want, I want less of that asset because um, it's, it's overvalued, right? Basically is kind of a way of thinking about it, right? There's two, there's two prices you play there's two prices you pay to roster any player in a DFS lineup. One is the salary of that player. The other is the ownership, right? Because fantasy points, fantasy points in DFS uh, have a, are not, are not absolute values, right? There's a, there's a relative value based on how much did you have to pay in salary to get that fantasy point, And also in how many other lineups in the pool got that same fantasy point. So if this asset is, you know, overvalued in the form of this price, then I don't, want to buy it right kind of I, I i i think sometimes it can help to find to think about this in, in somewhat financial terms um so that that's kind of that's that's basically what i'm looking at here um but why i ultimately say that like i don't look at this in a vacuum is because it's not it's not just enough to just like hyper key into this leverage column and make decisions purely based on that right how the raw probability of that player being successful also matters so here's a here's a good example, right? Let's just look at pitchers, right? So, you know, let's compare, for example. Um, okay, so these are actually two decent examples, right? So you could say that Ross Stripling and John Gray are similarly undervalued by the field, right? The field is basically, you know, from from a, a relative standpoint, right? They they the field is undervaluing both of these pitchers by 2.1%, right? Well, but when you couple with that that with the fact that John Gray's raw probability of being in that optimal is 10.7%, whereas Ross Stripling's is 3.7%, those, those, these have different values now, right? Like I would, I'm probably much more excited to roster John Gray than, than Ross Stripling. And we can do this on the, the negative side as well. So like if we look um, at the top here, right? So um let's see okay so actually here's an interesting one right so is is giolito or zach gallon a better play based on the research build right it's a complicated question you might say that giolito has a 6.7 percent chance of being or a, is negatively 6.7 percent leveraged by the field and zach gallon is uh negative 5.3 percent negatively leveraged by the by the field but Giolito's raw probability of being in that optimal period is 5% higher than Zach Gallon's. So there's another kind of component there, um, right? So basically, ultimately, what I'm looking for is looking for those, those inefficiencies and trying to figure out a few ways to, to, to maybe get an edge on the slate. Um, in terms of what you ultimately do with this information is kind of where it gets a little bit interesting. Um, and I think it's going to depend on your particular process and, and kind of how you want to play DFS. Uh, if you are new to this and want to give this a try, my best advice would be picking out, picking out a handful of things that you notice about the slate and then using them to get 
an opinion about how you want to play the slate, right? Don't try to look at every single thing here and figure out every single angle of what you're trying to do. Look for a couple different edges, right? And what I typically like to look for is like outliers in positive or negative leverage, right? So if you were looking at this, right, I think Blake Snell is a really good example of an outlier where it really seems like the field is going to like him tonight. I think there's a lot of other pitchers that have a similar percent chance of being in the optimal that are going to be way less owned. Maybe you take a stand on Blake Snell, right? Um, another example here would be um, Tarek Skubal, who is has a decent overall raw probability of of being in the, the one of the best two pitchers, right? Twelve percent. That's that is among his peers in you know Charlie Morton, Zach Wheeler, John Gray, these other guys. But he is the first pitcher sorted by raw probability of success that appears under owned. Right, all of these guys appear overowned. Tariq Skubal is the first that appears underowned. So, so that maybe, so maybe you have two kind of stands you want to take on the pitchers, right? And you could add in maybe Chris Bassett is another one that might be interesting as a guy you want to be under. So now you now you're opinionated about your your pitchers, right? You have something to say. For a lot of I, one of the things that I think is nice about a research build is I get people all the time that are like, "Hey, I get what Saberson does. I get why it's special. I get the." the general strategies I need to be as successful in the sport, but I have no idea how to come up with an opinion of what I should do, right? The research build was essentially my answer to that question, right? I, I had a similar question when I discovered Saberson years ago of like, oh, okay, sweet. Now what? Now what? Right? And this was kind of one of my answers to that of like, this was a way that I could become opinionated about the slate. Um, and you can come over here on the batters as well and look. So, you know, same deal, right? Um, you know, what are the, what's the raw probability of any batter being successful or it being in the optimal lineup on the slate? Well, it's about 6% at max, right? So where are the most inefficient ownerships, right? Well, we have Yankees, Braves, and Diamond Bat, really Yankees, right? We have, we have Yankees bats that are going to get up to 17% owned, 15% owned. That looks kind of efficient, right? Or that looks kind of inefficient, right? We know that, you know, the best overall projected players on the slate, well, the despite the fact that they are Yankees, only have like a 6% chance of being optimal, maybe I'm fading Yankee stacks and maybe I'm becoming opinionated about Yankee stacks. And as you do this a little bit more and more, you'll also start to notice the difference of how slate size affects things. Like one thing that, you know, just to be completely honest, on a 14-game slate, you're not going to get as much out of a research build because there's less inefficient ownership. Ownership spreads out. It's a little bit more, you know, there's, there's less inefficiencies there because of how spread out the ownership gets, how spread out the probabilities get. You just don't get as much. If you run a research build out of on a three game slate, then you get this, then you get this like um, what we were talking about earlier, where you're seeing like Verlander is going to be rostered in 80% of the lineups and he's optimal 35% of the time, right? That's then, then you get those kind of opportunities. Um, so, um, I cut my I cut myself off. I'm realizing now what I, I, I want what I wanted to talk about was what you actually do with this, right? Um, so I think one thing you can do is use this as a way, like pick out a couple different spots of you know becoming opinionated about the slate, finding a couple stands that you want to make. Um, you can make those adjustments to the player projections. You can make those adjustments to your exposures at the end of the build. Um, I when I have time, I take this sometimes to a, another level where I'm kind of pulling this, pulling this build down into Excel. And I'm not going to go into detail on this today because I don't have time. Um, I've done this on past streams though. Um, so if you, I imagine if you go on here and search, um, let's see, Excel. 
well, that didn't really work the way I expected it to. Um, maybe I can find what I'm talking about. Um, but anyway, like I've taken this to a point where I, I'll, I'll basically kind of do a little bit of an ownership analysis on every individual player and get an idea on, on ownership efficiency or inefficiency um, based on this. But um, anyway, that I, I don't know if that's a high level insight. Um, I think maybe that's more of an introduction. Um, but that's kind of what I'm basically thinking about there. So, um, I'm going to quickly try to get through some of these other questions that came in here as well here. So, um, Matt says lately, have you been finding taking stands on stacks with stack rules or just let every team run it and adjusting exposures accordingly? Um, I have been preferring to play more correlated as opposed to less correlated lately. Um, in kind of just like in, it feels like in my experience this season, um, I'm very aware of how many different lineups there are that you can make. Some of that's just like I'm talking with Will and some of the guys on the models team and they'll, you know, casually just drop that there's a trillion lineups that you can make even above 45,000 salary on a slate or something like that. Um, it makes me think that in my tiny little slice of 150 that I get to play that I've been preferring to be more correlated as opposed to less correlated. So I have been relying on a little bit of stacking rules um, to do things like making sure that I have at least a four stack in every lineup um, on a slate like tonight. I may go as far as just like basically saying that I'm just going to stack as much as possible, like five threes on DraftKings, four fours on FanDuel. And because there's 14 games on a slate, there's so many different lineups you can make. Like I, I maybe will just prefer to just try to target the ones that are as correlated as possible. Um, so that's, I, I've been doing that this season, um, relying a little bit more on, on picking out some of the stacks that I really want. So, um, Guy Will Gamble says on the other side, uh, another thing I did was stop setting stacking rules and run what I get. Um, I still get primarily the stacks I'm accustomed to anyway, and don't rule myself out of any other potential line of constructions that may be slate specific. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's probably still like definitely like the um, the I guess I would say best practice. Um, it's interesting. Okay, so and this is this is a bit of a tangent. I'll keep it short. I promise. If you look at what like. If you look at what sharp players are doing out there right now um, on like the results DB on rotor grinders, and if you especially focus on players who have like a more simulation based, I would say like less heuristic, less like opinionated process, um, like Giant Squid um, or, or Nerdy Tenor, right? Who's been pretty transparent about a lot of his process on other podcasts out there. Uh, you'll actually see. There are different, there are kind of some other lineup styles that are starting to show up, like some lineups that have unconventional stacks, um, sometimes even like the 222 types, right? Or or uncorrelated stacks at all, where and and I'd I if you're interested, I'd go do a little bit of your own research on this, where it's obvious if you look at the lineup that, that the the advantage that, that lineup is getting is it is an exceedingly leveraged leveraged lineup, right? Where you've basically, you may have, and I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily this is a good thing. It's just something I've noticed, right? You may have two pitchers, right? That are pretty well projected, right? So maybe you have a, a Morton or a gallon lineup and you're kind of specifically targeting individual elite hitters with upside to fill out the rest of the lineup that leverage intentionally against the pitchers that you don't have in that lineup. 
Um, and I've noticed that lineup construction and, and that naturally takes you in a direction of having like a two, two, two or a three, two, 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 or, uh, or, or even less stack than that. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I haven't, I'm still playing very correlated lineups, but I have noticed, I, I think my hypothesis there is that since I know some of those players are using basically contest simulations to build those lineups, that as more and the more the field starts to stack, the edge in the sport pulls into a little bit of a different direction. So I'm kind of going to continue to follow that here. Um, but I have found it interesting to see that I think there is some some viability to some smaller stacks um, there. So, um, all right. Um, Jen says, don't you get to fade the top pitchers? At, don't you get to fade the top pitchers very often, though, if you did that? So that's where... So that that is kind of where the application of the research build comes into play. And that's kind of why I say in context, context ultimately matters, right? Um, so, you know, you might come to the conclusion that all six of the top pitchers on the slate until you get to Tariq Skubal are over-owned. Now, can you afford to fade all six of the top pitchers on the slate? Probably not, because if we jump back to this research build, you would be sacrificing, let's see. If you fade every every top pitcher on the slate until you get to the uh, until you get to Tariq Skubal, right? 20, let's just add this up real quick. You're going to fade 22 plus 17 plus 13 plus 12 plus 12. 71% of the total optimal lineups in theory are now lineups that you can't even make. Right, you are trying to play twenty nine percent. You are trying to have a pool of one hundred fifty that occupy twenty nine percent of of the probabilities of what can actually happen. Right, like I wouldn't want to take on that risk. Right, so for me, just kind of looking at this, right, I might be looking at, you know, I guess the one other thing, and and this is there's it's really a can of worms going and talking about these research builds. You could talk about them forever. The other thing you got to remember is error. Right, like there is some error in this number, and there is some error in this number. Right, like if you if you said I'm going to fully fade Giolito because he's negative 6.7% leverage, well, what if this true value was actually 25%? And what if this actual true value is 25%, right? So you were off by, you know, what, 2.5% on either side of both of these. And now you've meaninglessly faded a player that you could have just played anyway, right? So you need to take this into context. And that's why I think that the safest thing to do to start is to look for significant outliers where it's it's much more likely based on these numbers that Blake Snell is underowned, is overowned than it is that Giolito is overowned, right? Even accounting for a little bit of error here. So, and then the one other thing here is that your your response here should kind of match the number of lineups you're playing and your personal risk tolerance, right? So for me, I might use this number as kind of a guidepost of maybe about where I want to be with Giolito tonight, right? Like if I think that, if I think that the field's going to be pretty efficient overall, right? Maybe leaning a little bit to the overown side. I, he's a, this is an interesting slate here tonight because Giolito's kind of been inconsistent this year. Um, hasn't been the best overall pitcher. I I don't know if the field is actually going to gravitate towards him being the best overall play on the slate. But you know, maybe I use this as a guidepost where I say I'm not going to be more than 20% exposed to Giolito, and I'm not just removing him from my pool. I'm not just completely fading every pitcher, but I'm you know, not getting more than 20% Giolito here, right? Um, 
and same thing with Scooball, right? Was a good example, right? So like that was a guy that I thought maybe is a little bit under-owned. Does that mean I'm going to lock him in? Does that mean I'm going to get 50%? Probably not. I might use this number as a little bit of a guidepost here and say, you know, I want at least, I don't know, 20% exposure to Scooball or something like that allows me to get four X, four and a half X leverage on the field. I'm over, I'm, I'm kind of leveraging his, his probability there. So I, 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 again, I think the, the main key is that this strategy can help you become opinionated about the slate. Um, but how you choose to apply that is going to be a little bit up to you. And I would say, if you're just getting started off, like take a lighter touch, right? Go, go half the projected ownership on a player you think is a good fade, uh, and go two X the projected ownership on a player that you think is a good play based on your research build, as opposed to making really dramatic stands. Um, so, um, and then let me just jump to this other question here. So I see if this is like all one thought, for example, if Verlander was 60% optimal and the field has 90% of them, where would you want to end up at 60% or under or in between 60 and 90? Um, for me, right. Again, it, it kind of depends on how the rest of the slate comes together and where the other opportunities are. But I would say for, for me personally, I would be surprised if I ended up higher than 60% on him, right? I might, if there are not a lot of other pitching opportunities out there, right? And, and if he's occupying 60% of the optimal rate, maybe I don't want to get more than, um, okay, actually, let me put it this way. I would likely end up, I would likely end up between 45% and 60%. And those are just a heuristic, but 45% is half of the field, which I like to use as kind of a general rule of thumb of like my, my fade and 60% is his optimal rate, which is like, that's the, that is, that's the starting number. The foundational number is 60%. I have no interest in rostering a player over his optimal rate. So I would probably, who, who I already think, sorry, I have no interest in rostering a player over his optimal rate who is already going to be overowned by the field. So I would say I would likely end up between 45 and 60%. And 45% is just a heuristic. That's not like a hard number, um, but that's probably where I would end up. So, but I mean, again, that, that works really well when you have big numbers, right? With pitchers. But if you're looking at like smaller numbers, that doesn't always necessarily work as well, right? Like you can't have 5% exposure to every hitter in the field. Right? It just doesn't make sense. I know some of you out there have tried to do that with your builds and it it almost breaks Saverson when you try to do that. Right. Like you you have to take some stands on hitters, right? I might have, you know, I might have 30% exposure to a hitter tonight. If I, you know, let's see, are there any positive leverage plays? Maybe um, you know, so St. Louis pops a little bit here, New, uh, New York also as well. You know, maybe I might have 30% exposure or, or the Rockies, something like that. Because you can't the the numbers are so small at this point, you can't play that game the same way right? Two X, the field on Charlie Blackman is one and a half percent and his optimal rate is 4%, right? Like those are, those are very small numbers at that point. So you have to play with like a little bit bigger numbers there, but, um, so Jen says, because in the end you want to win the contest by beating the others and not necessarily building lineups that are closer to the optimal, right? Well, yes, but you have to do something to beat the other lineups, right? Like, if you were to match the field perfectly with your exposures on every single player in the pool, you would essentially, you would essentially be making a statement that there is no ownership inefficiency whatsoever. No one is inefficiently owned. Uh, and your entire edge would have to come from something else, which would probably be roster construction, right? You would basically be saying the field is hundred percent accurate in the way that they project the slate. The um, raw prop, the raw probability of a player being in the winning lineup is exactly equal to their ownership. And my edge is building a lineup that is, 
because of its correlation or construction has a higher percent chance, uh, a higher percent chance uh, of being the optimal lineup than the product of the ownerships would essentially imply is basically what you're saying. And there are some sports or situations where maybe that works. But in my experience playing DFS, ownership is inefficient. I think the research build is a pretty compelling argument for that, that ownership can be inefficient. So in the Verlander example here, right? If if the true number of him being in the optimal is 60%, right? That means 40% of the time, he does not end up in the optimal. But in the contest, only 10% of the lineups are poised to exploit that. So being a part of that 10% is advantageous to you. Now, the risk tolerance component is how much of your lineups do you want to be in that portion, right? How many, how, what percentage of your lineups do you want to target on an outcome that has 40%, a 40% likelihood of happening, right? And then along with that, the other thing is that you don't, your DFS is not just picking a pitcher and letting it ride, right? You're actually building an entire lineup around that. So it, assuming you're going to fully fade Verlander in this hypothetical example, can you actually build 150 additional lineups where you feel like they are viable? right? That are, that are profitable in their own right. Um, so like, I, 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 I will say that I don't think this part of DFS is solved by any means. And I think there's a somewhat compelling argument out there that maybe ownership is overrated in some sports or some situations. Uh, and that, the far bigger edge is is in building lineup constructions and and correlating and and building a diversified portfolio and um, otherwise pretty closely matching the field, but it's not the way that I play DFS. So, um, like I I am somewhat I would say planting my flag on the idea that ownership is exploitable and that it is it is optimal DFS strategy to make some attempt to do so. But I think it's an interesting discussion for sure. So um, Jimmy says, research builds seem extremely important, especially in tennis, MMA, maybe golf or winning is so important. I would, I would say yes. And I would add on to that. And I would say that in sports where building the optimal lineup, sports and contest types where building the optimal lineup is really important. They really shine. Like, the examples you gave are all great examples of that. Um, I will I will happily admit that a 14-game baseball slate is maybe not the best application of a research build. Because one, how well does 1,500 slate simulations truly resemble the whole in this case? I don't know. Maybe not great. How much do you actually need the true optimal lineup to take down a contest in this particular case? Probably you don't. Those are two key assumptions with a research build that somewhat are somewhat weak uh, in this particular case, but on an MMA slate, right? One 1500 Sims is actually going to represent is actually going to represent the whole range of outcomes pretty well of that particular card, at least a lot better than it does for a 15 game baseball slate. And two, you almost certainly need the optimal to win, or you're going to need very close to the optimal. So these numbers, these exposure numbers all of a sudden get very accurate. Uh, these numbers, for example, for the batters, for individual batters, these are probably like very noisy, right? Like if you told me that you were playing, um, I don't know, like one player, one player over the other 
besides just looking at the extreme outliers because of a research build you conducted on a 14 game slate, you would, you would probably, I'd probably say approach with caution, right? Like you can obviously, I think you can somewhat obviously tell that the Yankees are probably going to be overowned. Maybe a couple, maybe Ramirez and Acuna and Marte and maybe some of these other Arizona bats. But as you start to get a little further down here, right? Like I wouldn't feel confident saying that Shohei Otani is going to be overowned tonight because of what these two numbers say, right? Like these, there's a lot of noise here. So, um, there is definitely, but in a, in an MMA slate, the, the noise is a lot smaller. It's, there's a lot more signal in there. So, um, anyway, um, okay. So, uh, Amy got me going here on the research builds, um, which tends to happen because I get excited talking about them. Uh, I'm going to cut off our stream here today because I've got to, I got to get out of here. Um, we will be right back again next week on Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern. I'm happy to continue this discussion uh, next weekend if anybody has any questions after you get a chance to to chew on this and play some DFS over the weekend. Um, In the meantime, if you have stumbled upon this stream here today for the first time and you are not already signed up with Sabersim, uh, we have a free seven-day trial on our site, sabersim.com. I always recommend signing up on Thursdays or Fridays because you get an opportunity to play for baseball and then also get to ch- check out all the weekend sports. You get the the MMA card. Um, the NASCAR race is there a formula one race this weekend. I can't remember. Um, but you get a, a chance to check out all the different sports we offer. So, um, anyway, uh, until then I'll be back on Monday. Good luck tonight. Enjoy the slate and I'll see you guys then. See ya.